Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Matthew, chapter two. We concluded chapter one of Matthew's gospel last time, and I remarked then that Matthew's goal was to begin his gospel by explaining who Jesus is. Simple enough. And according to Matthew, he is the prophesied Messiah of Israel. He is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. That's who he is. The importance of believers understanding what I just said can't be overstated. Christ is a Hebrew. More specifically, He's a Jew. He was not and is not some kind of generic, universal human being. We must understand His Jewishness, embrace his Jewishness in order to find the correct context for understanding his words to us. And as we re, will read in chapter 2, he said he came for the people of Israel. Might hurt your feelings a little bit, but that's what he said. Christ, one of a kind, Conception was a direct work of the God of Israel, or more correctly, a work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew goes on to explain that the Messiah's Hebrew birth name, Yeshua, was God ordained because it explains what he will do. He will act as the Father's agent to save the people of Israel from their sins. I realize that including the Father in the salvation process sounds almost like a heresy to much of Christianity. So focused on Jesus of Nazareth is the church. But because a name in that era carried such weight, in projecting the the character and the destiny, the purpose of a Jewish person. We must look closely at what Christ's actual Jewish birth name, Yeshua, means. Now, typically pastors, even some Bible scholars, will say it means God saves. That is not correct. It means Yehovah saves. That is the literal translation. Yehovah is the formal name of the Father, as first revealed to Moses. It is most certainly true that by His death on the cross, Yeshua atoned for our sins. Also that He is part of who God is in some mysterious way that nobody has found a means to adequately describe 
and that Yeshua is also our Passover Lamb, who is both our King and our Lord. Yet, Yeshua is subordinate to the Father. And the salvation plan of which He was the cornerstone is of the Father. That much is made clear by the ancient Old Testament prophets. It's made clear by Christ Himself in the Gospels and also by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Now as we turn our Bibles to the second chapter of Matthew, we begin by encountering a story that has caused both controversy and incalculable joy within Christianity. I want to encourage you that although we are going to immediately take a substantial detour that is pretty technical, everyone listening is perfectly capable of understanding it both for its content and for its importance to followers of Christ. You don't have to be highly educated. You certainly don't have to be a theologian. You know, God's Word is meant for all ordinary humans, not just the elite class. Thomas Edison once said, Genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So the issue is not your ability to comprehend it. It's your determination and your dedication to focus and learn and hopefully apply what the Lord wants us to know. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1224. 1224. After Yeshua was born in Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that's Judah, but at this time was called Judea, during the time when Herod was king, Magi from the east came to Yerushalayim and asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. But when King Herod heard of this, he became very agitated, and so did everyone else in Jerusalem. And he called together all the head Kohanim, priests, and Torah teachers of the people and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? In Bethlehem of Judah, they replied, because the prophet wrote, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod summoned the Magi to meet with him privately, and he asked them exactly when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, with these instructions. Search carefully for the child, and when you find him, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had listened to the king, they went away. 
And the star which they had seen in the east went in front of them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Upon entering the house, they saw the child with his mother Miriam, and they prostrated themselves and they worshipped him. Then they opened their bags and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they took another route back to their own country. After they'd gone, an angel of Adonai appeared to Yosef, Joseph in a dream. And he said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you to leave. For Herod is going to look for this child in order to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he left during the night for Egypt, and where he stayed until Herod died. And this happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, meanwhile, when Herod realized that the Magi had tricked him, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in and around Beit Lechem who were two years old or less, calculating from the time the Magi had told him. In this way were fulfilled the words spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing and lamenting loudly. It was Rachel, sobbing for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no longer alive. After Herod's death, an angel of Adonai appeared in a dream to Yosef in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and to go to Eretz Israel, for those who wanted to kill the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and went back to Eretz Israel. However, when he heard that Archelaus had succeeded his father, Herod as king of Judah, he was afraid to go there. Warned in a dream, he withdrew to the Galil, Galilee. And he settled in a town called Nazareth, Nazareth, so that what had been spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he will be called a Nazrati. The first half of verse 1 concludes Matthew's story of the conception and the birth of Yeshua by saying he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Although Matthew doesn't go into detail by explaining the significance of the place of Christ's birth, it was because the common Jew of his day would have already known it. And I'll occasionally remind you, Matthew was a Jewish believer whose gospel was written to Jews. But for we believers of the 21st century, mostly Gentiles, I'll explain that Bethlehem of Judea was also the birthplace of King David. The direct familial connection between the Messiah and King David is a must in the Messianic prophecies, as demonstrated by Matthew's genealogy of Yeshua in, in chapter 1, as well as the two figures, born many centuries apart, had to share a common birthplace. The second half of verse 2 gives us an approximation of the date of Jesus' birth based on the reign of King Herod. We know 
by modern calendars that Herod ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. So according to Matthew's timeline, Jesus had to have been born prior to 4 BC. Now the last part of verse 2 also begins a captivating story about a visitation of Magi in search for this new king of the Jews, an account that we only find in Matthew's Gospel. To be clear, okay, this story about the Magi coming and meeting with King Herod as part of their search and of a mysterious star that seems to move and then hover over Bethlehem in order to guide the Magi appears in no other place in the New Testament than in the book of Matthew. Now, Because we've just read this story of the visitation of the Magi, we're now going to begin our detour in order to better understand it, because a significant number of scholarly explanations about who the Magi were, what prompted them to make such a long journey, and of course about the appearance of this mysterious star. It's been set forth in Christianity, all of these things, and I, but I think we can probably shed a little more light on the subject and clear up some misconceptions. Now most explanations that we're all familiar with have actually been based on modern Western thinking, or they incorporate the mindset and circumstance of an era and a region that does not properly represent the era and place of Christ's birth. Now, I want to say in advance that I owe a debt of gratitude to the outstanding works and research of scholars like Michael Molnor, Otto Neugebauer, Wayne Sales, Owen Gingrich, and, and some others who have gone the extra mile to publish their findings that shed such valuable light on the subject of the Magi within the context of the Magi's beliefs and understanding of the celestial bodies as it was in the first century. At the time of Christ's birth. So here we go. Who were these Magi? Who were they? The first thing to notice that despite the many Christian traditions and songs about them and the countless Christmas programs that always portray three magi, we're not told how many there were. So the idea of three magi traveling to find the Christ child is entirely fictional. It is not supported by the Bible. It's not supported by any ancient source. Perhaps the next, next most fictional description within Christian tradition is that the Magi were kings. So that famous song that we all know, We Three Kings of Orient Are, is just wrong on about every account. Now, the Magi were highly respected experts in their field, in which they use the wandering lights up in the sky to interpret current events 
and especially to determine future events. Now, although they are said to have come from the east, there's an awful lot of landmass to the east of Judea, so their point of origin can't be pinpointed, although there are some hints that might narrow it down a little bit. Now, perhaps the most important feature of the Magi for us to understand is they were not astronomers as we might think of an astronomer today, but also they were not Babylonian astrologers. Rather, they were Hellenistic astrologers. What does that mean? What's, a, what's Hellenistic mean? Okay. It simply means those who have adopted the Greek language, the Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek art, Greek religious views, it's all about being Greek. So the Magi believed and practiced everything that was standard and universally accepted in the Roman worldview within the Roman Empire. To say it another way, these Magi did not practice some ancient form of Oriental Babylonian astrology as it's typically portrayed. In fact, that particular form of astrology had ceased to exist shortly after the world-changing conquests of Alexander the Great in the late 300s BC. The other point is, and this is fundamental for proper understanding, it is that the Jews, particularly Holy Land Jews, generally did not practice any form of astrology at this time. They did not look to the skies for understanding events or for foretelling the future. However, understanding events and foretelling the future is exactly what Hellenistic astrologers did. And so, it is what the Magi did that we read of in Matthew. Now, there is an underlying historical context that greatly aids our understanding of the role of the Magi in Christ's birth story. First, Rome and the Holy Land were in a constant state of confrontation and tension. The Jews felt offended by Rome's overwhelming presence and Rome was frustrated with these stubborn people who just refused all effort to assimilate. The Jews valued, they insisted on keeping their unique faith and culture, traditions, history while Rome wanted them to abandon their heritage and instead conform to this progressive Hellenistic way of life that the rest of the empire had adopted. This festering hatred of the Romans led the Jews to openly express their hope for a Jewish Messiah, a Messiah that would deliver them from Rome's heavy hand. In turn, the Romans were very concerned 
about the Jews' messianic prophecies of a charismatic deliverer. So they were on high alert for his arrival. Interestingly, in both cases, the expectation was for a Jewish leader to emerge that would defy and challenge the Romans militarily. The Jews, of course, welcomed this notion, but Rome feared it. Now, the second element of the context for the influence of the Magi on our story is that astronomy was advancing at a high rate in the years leading up to Christ's birth. It is ironic that while Hellenistic astronomers still thought of the earth as flat, the sun as revolving around the earth, and they had a rather mistaken understanding of the layout of our solar system, nonetheless their many years of celestial observations enabled them to, de to develop mathematical equations that could fairly accurately predict the movement of the stars and the planets. And this is going to play a role in our understanding of the famous star that the Magi followed to Bethlehem. Now the third element is that there was no real distinction between astronomy and astrology in this era. In fact, those terms that I just used are modern, they weren't even in use in the first century. The constantly progressing understanding of the movement of these luminous objects in the sky that could now be predicted, something that we could probably call science, made the development of astrology all the more credible and therefore exciting. The entire purpose of astronomical observation in that era was to more accurately aid in the predictions that the cosmos was thought to reveal to the Magi. The belief that fate could be determined in advance of a future event by means of observing and interpreting the movement of the stars and the planets, this was well accepted throughout the Roman Empire except by the Jews. Thus these highly educated people, they were expert stargazers, these magi. They were greatly prized and admired for, for their knowledge and their wisdom was much sought after and it was believed. They were anything but charlatans. They were convinced that the movement of the stars and the planets, when properly understood, was a gift from the gods to help humankind navigate the present and prepare for the future. Well, by the time of Christ's birth, the astrologers had devised a system of interpreting the meaning of the lights in the sky that we might call the zodiac. It consisted of constellations of stars that were named and associated with living creatures. Very interestingly, the Hellenistic stargazers had determined that the constellation Aries, the ram, 
was the zodiac symbol that had to do with the region of Judea. Thus the Magi from the east would have looked towards Aries to tell them about events concerning Judea, among which could be indications of the death of a current king or the birth of a new king of the Jews. It is within that belief system that I've just described to you that we have to consider the fascinating Bethlehem star. Now one doesn't have to read too many biblical commentaries on the book of Matthew to see this wide spectrum of both theological and scientific views about the star of Bethlehem. Among those views is that the star is just a fictional myth that is meant to add drama and glory to the birth of Jesus. Another view is that there is no point in trying to explain the star astronomically or astrologically or in any natural terms. There indeed was a star, but it was a supernatural event, a rather short-lived divine miracle of God. Other views are usually about trying to find rare but natural celestial events that coincided with the nativity. Recently some scholars have argued that the appearance of the mysterious star is a Jewish midrash on the famous Old Testament account of a seer named Balaam. An account that says that the appearance of a star would accompany the birth of the Messiah. We read about this in the Torah, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 17. This is the speech of Balaam, son of Beor, the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened, the speech of him who hears God's words, who knows what Elyon knows, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. A star will step forth from Jacob, a scepter will arise from Israel to crush the corners of Moab and destroy all the descendants of Sheth. Now, obviously, Balaam's mention of a star stepping forth is being related by some scholars to the star over Bethlehem. Now, while I don't find this line of thinking conclusive, It is hard to ignore the many parallels between the story of King Balak and his hired gun Balaam to the Magi's journey to Judea and its backstory. For instance, King Herod's family was from Idumea, formerly known as Edom, and King Balak was also from that same region. Second, just as the Magi ruined King Herod's plans to kill the Christ child, so did Balaam ruin King Balak's plans to kill off the Israelites. Third, Balaam was himself a Magi, just as were the stargazers of the East who came to find the new king of the Jews. And fourth, The Magi came because a star announced the birth of a new king of the Jews, and Balaam mentioned a star that had to do with the arrival of a savior and a king that would come from among 
the people of Israel. So on its face, we can't simply discard the idea of this connection between Balaam's prophecy and the Magi coming from the east as an explanation for the Bethlehem star. So what would have been the significance for these Magi of a star suddenly appearing? And why would they, frankly, why would they or anybody pay any attention to it? See, during the time of King Herod's reign over the Holy Land, it was not only the Jews who were looking for a sign of a, a new figure to arise and to fundamentally change their circumstances within Judea. Because the Jews, the expect, uh, for the Jews, rather, the expected figure was a Messiah. For the pagan stargazers, the expected figure was a king. Now, the sign the Jews were looking for was not to be found in the sky. And yet, the Jews, in some ways, didn't know for sure exactly what they should be looking for beyond their current circumstances and their hopes for a charismatic military leader to just suddenly come upon the scene. But the sign the Magi were looking for could only be found in the sky because that's where they believed all such signs appeared. They were, after all, astrologers. So the terms that more closely fit with, with what the Magi were looking for are portents and omens, terms more associated to the pagan worldview. So those are the terms that I'm going to use as we go forward as it relates to the Magi. Now let's look again at that story of the Magi and the Bethlehem star that is in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 16. You're going to want to have it open to look at it, unless you've got it memorized. A close reading shows the Magi did not go to King Herod and ask, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Rather, these magi arrived in Jerusalem and started asking around of the common city folk in Jerusalem. It was the word of this inquiry that finally reached the ears of Herod because it so unsettled the residents of Jerusalem. One can only imagine what this news did to Herod's already paranoid and suspicious psyche. Herod was a brutal man who committed terrible atrocities, even upon his closest family members. It was not just his brutality that distanced him from his Jewish subjects, it was also that Herod was not a Jew. His mother was Nabataean, his father Idumean. Again, the Greek name for Edom. Even though sometime earlier Idumea had been forced to accept Judaism as their authorized religion, Herod was not raised in a Jewish household, but rather he was raised in a Hellenistic household where some combination of Hellenistic and Jewish traditions were practiced. 
Herod then was a Hellenistic tyrant. He was completely aligned with Rome, fully in tune with Roman culture, although in another sense he knew and adopted some of the Jewish traditions that had been taught to him in his childhood. Any inkling of danger to his throne, real or imagined, was instantly dealt with murderously. He killed three, three of his own biological sons, thinking they might be plotting against him. He had so many people killed, most of them innocent, that Augustus Caesar once famously commented that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's family. With thousands of Roman troops trampling all over the holy city, coupled with Herod's ruthless rule, it's no wonder that the Jewish people yearned for a deliverer, and they thought that they must be living in the prophesied times of the apocalypse. Now, notice that the question the Magi asked the residents of Jerusalem was not if a new king of the Jews had been born, rather, where? There was no doubt in their minds that a new Judean king had been born because a celestial portent had alerted them to it, and they fully trusted what they saw and what it meant. Now, oddly enough, the good people of Jerusalem, as well as Herod, were startled by the Magi's hunt for a new Jewish king. They were unaware of any such event. Yet Herod understood the dire consequences of the meaning of the Magi's message because he believed they, that they were not talking about yet just another of the many rivals for his throne, but rather that this new king would also be the Messiah. We are left, however, with a couple of important but unanswered questions. First of all, how exactly did these Magi know that this new king of the Jews had been born? How did they know? And second, what was it exactly that they saw in the sky that alerted them to it? Something, think about this, something that the very people over whom this new king was supposed to rule, were completely unaware of it. But pagan stargazers expected and found it. Clearly, the star of Bethlehem plays a key role in this mystery, because the Bethlehem star, Bethlehem star has mesmerized, thrilled, inspired, millions and millions of Christians over the centuries, as it is, so it's definitely worth our while to explore exactly what this star might have been, where might it have come from. Now, most of the theories about it are based upon how best to translate the Greek word for star, which is aster, A-S-T-E-R, aster. Matthew does not go to any lengths to give us much help to understand the particulars of the star. 
But perhaps the main problem we face is that the term aster could describe any number of heavenly bodies and luminaries, including comets. Therefore, perhaps the most widely proposed solution for the identity of the Bethlehem star is that it was indeed a comet. Now, because of their nature, comets can appear in the sky unexpectedly, hang around for weeks, even a couple of months, and then disappear. Here's the issue with such a reasonably sounding solution that the star Bethlehem was actually a comet. For the pagan Magi, a comet was a portent of disaster. It was a bad omen. It was anything but something to get excited about and be all joyful about. Comets were often thought to portend the death of a king, perhaps even of an emperor as powerful as Caesar, but not of a birth of a king. During the rule of Vespasian in 79 AD, less than a decade after the destruction of the temple, a comet suddenly appeared in the night sky. And he knew, Vespasian knew, his subjects and his rivals would believe that this was an astrological portent that the end of his life was imminent. And you know, when such a thing is believed by the population in general and his enemies in particular, it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It gives them an opening to act upon a king and blame it on fate. So to deflate any such hope for his demise, Vespasian's reaction and clever countermove was recorded by the historian Suetonius. Suetonius says he, Vespasian, did not cease his jokes even an apprehension of death and an extreme danger. For when, among other portents, a comet appeared in the heavens, he declared that it applied to the king of the Parthians because he wore his hair long. So Vespasian declares that the comet's bad omen of death didn't apply to him, but rather to the king of Parthia. What has long hair got to do with it? It's because the Greek term komatai, from which we get the English word comet, doesn't just mean comet, it literally means long-haired star. Because most comets have this long trailing tail behind it. Now, Parthian kings customarily wore their hair long. And Vespasian took advantage of this common knowledge to deflect any belief that his own death was imminent. However, to end this short story and move on, I must tell you that after a few months from the first appearance of the comet, the long-haired king of Parthia still hadn't died, but Vespasian did, probably from what was dysentery. Now, I could offer you a few more stories like this and examples from Roman times about the bad omen that comments symbolize, but time didn't permit me to do it. So I'll just sum it all up by quoting, by quoting Claudius Ptolemy, 
very famous Greek astrologer from about 150 AD. He says, for these comets naturally produce the effects peculiar to Mars and Mercury. Wars, hot weather, disturbed conditions, and the accompaniments of these. And they show through the parts of the zodiac in which their heads appear and through the directions in which the shapes of their tails point, the regions upon which these misfortunes impend. The point is, comets were harbingers of death and calamity to the Hellenistic astrologers of the first couple of centuries before and well after Yeshua's birth. So the thought of modern Bible scholars that the star of Bethlehem was a comet that happily portended the birth of a new king of the Jews to the visiting Magi just does not pass muster. The star of Bethlehem was no comet. And we can confidently scratch that one off of our list of possibilities. Now modern astronomers and Bible scholars who consult them have sometimes come to the conclusion that the Bethlehem star must have been a supernova. Now, nova just means new star. It is named thusly because all of a sudden a new light appears in the sky that hadn't been there before and it hangs around for a few weeks. Now, for those among us who have interest in such matters, a celestial nova is not an event revealing the birth of something new. It concerns a sudden change in something that is old. A nova is a star that has burned for billions of years, but now it's in the late stages of dying. Without getting technical, this star that had formerly been too faint for us to see, but suddenly is so bright that it can't be missed, occurs as it begins to run out of fuel and the result is essentially like the violent meltdown of a runaway nuclear reaction. But there is also something similar that scientists call a supernova. It is even more spectacular than a regular nova. A very bright new light in the sky suddenly appears and over a period of a few months it slowly fades into oblivion. There are many today who mentally picture the star of Bethlehem as this super bright object that just lights up the sky and it suddenly appears and then it fades away. So the thought by some Bible academics is that the birth star of Christ was actually a coincidental supernova event. It is interesting that Johannes Kepler, the famous astronomer of the early 17th century, is the one who first came up with this theory. However, in time he discarded it when the astronomical evidence from his own research proved to him that this was not the case. So instead, he opted for the Bethlehem star being a divine miracle. In the end, there is no historical evidence going back to the first century that claims that a bright new star appearing, whether a nova or a supernova, was of much interest 
to these astrologers. And it certainly did not portend the birth of a king. So from the viewpoint of the Magi's, a bright new object in the sky in, a, in and of itself had no bearing on their search for a new king of the Jews. So now let's move on to the next theory. The next most popular theory of the Bethlehem star is that it was a somewhat rare planetary conjunction. What's a planetary conjunction? A conjunction is when two or more objects in the sky appear to be very close together. A conjunction could be of, could be of asteroids, could be of comets, stars, planets, thus a planetary conjunction as opposed to some other kind. The reality, however, is that in the first century not a great deal of distinction was made between stars and planets. They were all called aster, what we translate as stars. So for the astrologers of that day, stars, aster, was a rather all-encompassing term applied to the many different kinds of lights up in the sky because they had no means to understand what they were or how they might be inherently different from one another other than what the naked eye could detect. It's fascinating that when Kepler was first formulating his supernova theory, which he later abandoned, that he also calculated that there was an event that occurred in 6 BC not of two, but three planets coming into conjunction. This has been confirmed, by the way, by modern math and science. Now, although he made note of this rarity, he didn't associate it with the Bethlehem star. So here's the rub of what we've discussed thus far. Whether comets, supernovas, a planetary conjunction, there is no historical evidence that these kind of events would have played any role in the perception of the Magi about the Bethlehem star or would it announce the birth of a king of the Jews, at least not by themselves. Not by themselves. Further, when Matthew reports about the Bethlehem star, he in no way describes it as a divine miracle. Rather, what we must find, if possible, is some celestial, celestial circumstance. Now hear this, I want to repeat this because I want you to catch this. What we have to find is some celestial circumstance that would have conformed to the detailed, to the powerful astrological belief system of who? The Jews or the Magi? The Magi. Not something that might tantalize us when we hear about it. Some spectacular happening in the skies, no doubt, would have caught their attention and they would have thought deeply about it. But the portent of the birth of a king, in our case, a king of the Jews, would have had to fit an already well established set of criteria in order for the Magi to assign it that specific meaning. Here's the thing to ponder as we finish today's lesson. 
What did the Magi see that without any doubt whatsoever to their minds told them, correctly by the way, that a new king of the Jews had been born in Judea? And yet, here's the kicker, people in Judea certainly didn't notice it. Jews may not have practiced astrology, but that doesn't mean they don't pay attention to the movement of the stars and the sun and the moon. Of course they do. They use them to determine months and years and seasons and even the beginning and ending of some of their festivals. So they certainly would have noticed something spectacular or unusual occurring in the sky. What this heavily implies then is that whatever the Magi saw in the sky that told them that a new king of the Jews had been born, it had to be subtle, not obvious. Or even better, it had to be something that the learned stargazers would have noticed, but nobody else would have. We're going to pick up this topic again next time. See if we can discover just what it was that alerted the Magi to the birth of Yeshua.